Thank you all. Good morning. Are you hot? Could be worse. You could be at my son's house without air conditioning. Or you could be here without air conditioning. I realize we have some of that. I, I think we owe a tremendous, and all our staff works really hard, but uh, Chris Ellison worked so hard this weekend trying to get air conditioning working everywhere. It was up here yesterday and Friday night and top of everything else. So if you see Chris and get a chance, just thank him. Uh, I know he worked really hard. Uh, back to fans, we were talking about that yesterday. We stick some fans in there and let's see if that helps. And I'm glad he did. So take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 7. It's always cool. I love to be here with you. I'm uh, excited as always. And I want us to think about, if you turn to John 7, we're going to be looking at Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. We'll talk more about what all that means in a moment. But I specifically want to look at it from the perspective of what it means to be who he is. What it means that he genuinely sets us free. I want you to, I think it's one of the most important doctrines for any believer to grab and to understand. It's what in John chapter 3, where John says, the truth will set you free. And he talks about the son. He says, if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. We talk about being free, and as a country, we celebrate on the 4th of July our independence. And with all the issues that we have and the culturally where we are as a nation, we're still the greatest nation on planet Earth, and God historically has blessed us, had his hand on us, and allowed us to be free, and that people desire to be here. Most of us, not all, but most of us were born, reared in the United States of America, and we're blessed that we were. Last Sunday, I'm standing in the, the foyer out in Arlington, and this sweet lady comes walking in, and you could tell she'd never been there before, and she's a little, I guess she's about my age, I, I couldn't tell, but very sweet lady by herself. She comes walking in, and I'm just standing there, and I said, hello, how are you, and can I answer some questions for you? And she said, I'm from Ukraine, and I just came here, and I think it's her daughter that lives in Arlington, and she could barely speak English. She said, I came to, I want to go to church, and I said, well, you're in the right place, and we talked a little bit, and I made sure Mary went over and said hello to her because she didn't know anybody in this broken English. And so talking to her, I had uh, Rhiannon and some other people. We had some uh, lady. We have a ladies' class, and that lady went over, leads the class, went over and talked to her. And, and she said afterwards on the parking lot, Mary and I were talking to her, and she said her biggest need is she really needs to learn how to speak English well so she can get a good job. And she came here to escape what's going on in Ukraine, obviously, and he was talking about all that she had in Ukraine and uh, very successful, apparently, and just had to leave it. Just had to leave it all behind and go to survive. And I think sometimes we forget how blessed we are. Amen. There are believers all over the world right now. There's one example, and there are other, many other examples. 
that if you have openly have faith in Jesus Christ, uh, a death sentence might be placed on you or your family. So I think it's important. One of the things I want to encourage you with today as believers and encourage all of us in the body of Christ, and we're looking at this Jesus as he goes to the Feast of Tabernacles, and again, we'll talk about what that means in a moment. But how important your Savior is. And I realize we realize that Jesus is God and that he is the Savior of mankind. He came and died for the sins of the world. But historically, beyond the significance of that, what it means in my individual life on a daily basis that I'm set free by the person of Jesus Christ. That what he accomplished by his death, burial, and resurrection, he defeated my two most important enemies, sin and death. He defeated both of them when he rose from the dead. I want to read you a little blip from a guy that I, I follow and listen to. He's passed away about 20 years ago now, but I read all his old sermons. And he wrote this. His name's Ray Stedman. More than 2,000 years ago, there was a man born, contrary to the laws of life. This man lived in poverty, and he was reared in obscurity. He didn't travel extensively. Only once did he cross the boundary of the country in which he lived, and that was during his exile in childhood. He possessed neither wealth nor influence. His relatives were inconspicuous, and he had neither training nor formal education. In infancy, he, started, he startled a king. In childhood, he puzzled doctors. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature, walked on the billows as if pavements, and hushed the seas to sleep. He healed the multitudes without medicine, and he made no charge for his service. He never wrote a book. And, in all the libraries, and yet all the libraries of the country could not hold the books that had been written about him. He never wrote a song, and yet he has furnished the theme for more songs than all the songwriters combined. He never founded a college, but all the schools put together cannot boast of having so many students. He never marshaled an army, drafted a soldier, or fired a gun, and yet no leader has ever had more volunteers who have, under his orders, made more rebels stack arms and surrender without a shot fired. He never practiced psychiatry, and yet he has healed more broken hearts than all the doctors far and near. Once each week, multitudes make their way to worshiping assemblies to pay homage and respect to him. The names of the past proud statesmen of Greece and Rome have come and gone. The names of the past scientists, philosophers, and theologians have come and gone. But the name of this man abounds more and more. Though time has spread 2,000 years between the people of this generation and the scene of his crucifixion, Yet he still lives. Herod couldn't destroy him, and the grave could not hold him. He stands on the highest pinnacle of heavenly glory, proclaimed of God, acknowledged by angels, adored by saints, and feared by demons as the living personal Christ, our Lord and Savior. That's who your Jesus is. That's who your Savior is, and I think it's significant. Jesus said this is the way it's going to be. There's going to be division even within your house. We don't have to go around the room and say it, but I know personally in my life, and I happen to know in some of your lives, and probably in, in most of our lives, somewhere within your own family, I'm not talking about just people you know, but within your own family, there is some division over Jesus Christ. Who he is to me, might not be the same thing he is to, say, my daughter, my friends, 
I was talking to Sharon in my class this morning in Arlington. I have two siblings, an older brother and a younger brother. Neither one are believers, and I've been praying for both of them for 53 years. It's not a subject they will even discuss with me. If I try to share Christ with them, one of them will respectfully listen and say it's not for me. The other one just says his, his theme in life is me and God got our own thing going on. That's a direct quote. I, said, I told him, Kevin, that'd make a great country song, but it ain't going to get it done. That'd be my title for that song. It ain't going to get it done. You see, it's important that we understand the one who set us free, the one who came, born of a virgin, was willing to commit himself to obediently, as Philippians says, obedient unto death, even the death of the cross and that horrific way of dying, willingly chose to allow himself to be tortured to death in the most heinous way man has ever devised to kill another man. He chose that way to die. Not lethal injection or drug overdose. He chose crucifixion. Because the message is, for God so loved me that he gave. God so loved you that he gave. Jesus volitionally, we'll see that here in a moment, volitionally, willingly chose to die that way. Nobody made him. Pilate could, Pilate wouldn't. Only authority, Jesus said, the only authority you've got is what I gave to you. You don't have authority over me. And he wanted to make sure his followers knew that. What we're going to see here in John chapter 7, let's just start. Talking about division and who is he. Even within your own family, let's start looking at it. Who is this Jesus? John 7, 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. Context. Back to verse 3. His brothers, siblings, therefore said to him, Depart from here, Galilee, go to Judea, that your disciples, those who say they follow you, also may see the works you're doing. For no one does anything in secret, while he himself seeks to be known openly. These are his siblings talking to him. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers, siblings, did not believe in him. Back to verse 1. After these things... It's one of the most significant moments in the life of Jesus Christ, historically. That little phrase, after these things. We're not going to study it. We're not going to go back and read it. It's referencing back in John chapter 5, Jesus heals a man, a paralytic, on the Sabbath. He heals this guy on the Sabbath. And from that moment forward, the rulers, quote, the scribes and Pharisees, the rulers of the Jews, targeted Jesus to kill him. It's the beginning right here, after these things, after he heals that guy in John 5. After that moment, the Pharisees, the scribes, the leaders of the Jews, openly and militantly proclaimed, we want Jesus of Nazareth dead. We want him gone we want him out of our hair. He's, he's affecting our authority. The crowds are beginning to follow him. We want him gone. They didn't care about the man being healed. They didn't care about their people spiritually. It was all about their own personal authority and power. We're in charge. And everybody's going to bow down and do what we tell them to do. They were self-righteous. 
Hypocrites, Jesus' words are not mine. They were poisonous snakes. They were whitewashed tombs. They were, they were demons in the flesh. They were go Jesus' words, not mine. You're going to hell and you're taking people with you. Very powerful stuff. And they wanted Jesus gone. He was a political threat to them, and they wanted him gone. And you know the story. And ultimately, they get Rome to do it for them by lying and deceiving. And they get Rome to crucify Jesus for them. But that's not what we're talking about today. So notice verse 1 again. Jesus stays in Galilee and avoids Judea. And here's the, here's the picture. I know we've talked about it before. But the area that Jesus lived in, grew up in, in, in Palestine, however you want to describe it, had three basic sections, about the size of West Tennessee. You had Judea in the middle where Jerusalem was. It was the center of Judaism. You had the northern area, Galilee, or excuse me, Samaria was in the middle. Southern part was Judea, where Jerusalem was in the middle was Samaria. So you got Judea, you got Samaria, and in the northern part was Galilee. And these Jews, these self-righteous, hypocritical Jews, hated Samaritans. They would not even step on Samaritan soil. They would go around it. If they had to go from Judea to Galilee, they would go around it, take an extra two days, so they didn't have to step in the land where the Samaritans lived. They hated them. That's why I love the Bible. When Jesus wanted to tell them a parable about a good person, he picked a Samaritan. I love that. The parable of the good Samaritan. That was an oxymoron to a Jew, especially a, a ruler. There is no such thing as a good Samaritan. It can't be. That's what Jesus taught them. And remember, we looked at the woman at the well, Samaritan woman at the well, John 4. Jesus said, I have to go to Samaria. And his own disciples said, whoa, whoa. That was the Hebrew, whoa. <laughs> you you want to go to Samaria? Don't you know that we don't do that? Jesus said, I have to. Now, number one, he was going to set that woman free. And he's just going to take her back to her town and witness to all the people there. But beyond that, Jesus was sending a message to his disciples. My gospel is for whom? Even Samaritans whom they considered dogs. It's even for them. They needed to see that message. Hear it, but see it. So he, he heals the paralytic on the Sabbath. Again, Jesus knew it was the Sabbath, did it intentionally on the Sabbath, because he was sending a message. Is it about the day, or is it about the Lord of the Sabbath? I am Lord of the Sabbath. Why does the church worship on Sundays? Why are we here today? Is a Sunday, I think. Why do we do this on Sunday instead of Saturday, which was the Sabbath? Still is to the Jews. Why don't we do it on Saturday? Some people do. We worship all the time, but the reason we get together on Sunday is Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday. That was the epitome of the God's eternal plan of salvation, his resurrection. Without that, we don't, we don't even have any reason to be here, except we like each other. He rose from the dead. That's the reason. All right, back to verse 1. So, 7 to 1. He stayed in Galilee. He didn't want to go to Judea. Why? Look at the end of verse 1. Because the Jews wanted to kill him. We already talked about why. But don't, don't miss this. He stays in Galilee, but he doesn't go to Judea. And Galilee was not, Judea was big time. Galilee was very obscure. His first miracle was at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Uh, he was from Nazareth, Galilee. Nothing good could come out of Nazareth. Was, they talk about that. Jesus didn't want to go to Judea. Very important. Please don't miss this. Because the Jews wanted to kill him. 
Was it because Jesus was afraid of the Jews and couldn't handle it? No. The reason, and you see it throughout the Gospel of John, it's this little phrase, and I love it. His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. We'll see that here in just a moment. He didn't go to, he didn't go to Judea. For, because he did not stay away from Judea because he was afraid of the Jews. He didn't go because his hour hadn't come to allow them to kill him. Sooner or later, he was going to let them kill him because it was God's plan. But not yet. The point being, the most comforting doctrine in all the Bible is the sovereignty of God. The time was going to come, John 13, 1, Jesus knowing that his hour had come. He washes the disciples' feet. He gives them the great upper room discourse, and then he goes to the cross because his hour had come. Beautiful picture. But his hour has not yet come yet. Well, let's see how that works out. So, verse 2. The Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, just a couple of things. Feast of Tabernacles began in October, like the 15th day of the month, 7th month, October area. It lasted seven days. At the end of the seven days, they would have a holy convocation at the end. Jews had seven religious festivals, feasts throughout the year. For three of those, all male Jews were required to be at the temple, Jerusalem. Three. One was Passover, unleavened bread. One was Pentecost and one was tabernacles, the one we're looking at here. All Jewish males were required to be at the temple during those festivals. During the Feast of Tabernacles, which was their number one celebratory time of the year, it's like a week-long party. Think how many people would be in Jerusalem if every male Jew on the planet was required to be there. That'd be a big convocation, wouldn't it? And it's called tabernacles for a couple of reasons, but they lived for that week, they would get tree branches, things that they would make, shelters, and they lived in these booths, B-O-O-T-S. It's also known as the Feast of Booths, not booze, but booths, B-O-O-T-S, also known as tabernacles. Tabernacle means where God dwells or dwelling. So it was a picture, and it was a very, again, very celebratory, very happy time, and it was a picture and a celebration of how God provided for the children of Israel after the exodus after they left Egypt, he set them free or saved them from bondage in Egypt, and they were headed to the promised land ultimately for glorification, justification, glorification. You get saved, ultimately you go home to the promised land, and then they had the wandering time. But the picture here is during their time of leave, from leaving Egypt, heading to Canaan, God's provision for them. That's what they're celebrating during the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was observed historically in the children of Israel after they entered the promised land. And it is the picture of the future. The great celebration and harvest where all believers get together eternally, forever. So Jesus is in Galilee. Feast of Tabernacles takes place in Judea, Jerusalem, where the temple is. As an obedient Jew, he was going to go but not the way his family wanted. So look at point one on your handout. This disbelief in Jesus. Look at verse three. His brother said, won't you leave here, Galilee, and go to Judea, that your disciples may see what you're doing. Now these are his half-brothers. These are his siblings. And verse five, even Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. Let's pause for a moment. 
I always joked about this, but I think it's incredible. These people we're talking about here in John 7, verses 3 through 5, they lived and grew up in the same home with Jesus Christ as their older brother. And yet they didn't believe he was the Messiah. Just for a moment, can you, I had an older brother. Can you imagine Jesus being your older brother? That'd be kind of tough, wouldn't it? Look, can't you keep your room clean? Look at Jesus' room. Do I ever have to tell Jesus to take the garbage out? Does Jesus pick his clothes up? Is Jesus respectful of his mama? Do I have any issues with Jesus? No, you, you, you need to be like your brother. And imagine if that were your brother, what might your attitude be? Listen, we had a problem in our home with me and my older brother just simply because after I got saved, I was talking about God, and he was like, I don't want to hear about that. You know, we had issues. Jesus is your older brother. That could be a problem. They didn't believe in him. What they're doing here, they're mocking Jesus. It's actually a fulfillment of Psalm 69, 8, which says, I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. You know it had to hurt Jesus to the core that his own siblings didn't believe in him. Think about that. And you think about Jesus and his ministry and all that he did. He was God in the flesh. And yet, by and large, did the culture accept him or reject him? They rejected him. Yet the most significant man in the history of the human race, because he is the God-man, to this day still brings division. You've got to make a choice. I'm either a Christ follower or I'm not. And even in homes, that can be difficult. In families, it can be hard. So basically, if you'll notice again, verse 3, his brother said, depart from here and go to Judea. Your disciples may see the works that you're doing. So their plan for the brothers was, look, Jesus, you need to go up to the Feast of Tabernacles. Galilee is too small a place. We're out here in the sticks. Nobody's going to hear about you. You need to go up to Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles because who's going to be there? Every male Jew on planet Earth has to be at the temple during Tabernacles. It's going to be a massive crowd. Go up there and make it known you're the Messiah. It sounded like a good plan by man's perspective. Verse 3, your disciples, your Judean disciples, they need to see your works, what you can do. You need to show and prove to them your Messiah and get them on board. Verse 4, no one does anything in secret while he himself be, seeks to be known openly. If you're the Messiah, why are you keeping it a secret? Go to Jerusalem and make it known. Verse 5, his brothers did not believe in him. They just wanted to use and manipulate Jesus for their own benefit. Because as Jesus near kinsmen, his brothers, same mom, if Jesus were accepted as Messiah, and in their mind, if Messiah overthrew Rome and set up the kingdom, what were they going to get out of it? My brother's the king. Would they benefit from that? Sure they would. That's their mindset. 
can we get out of it? How can we use this? And notice the caution of Jesus. Verse 1, he stays. Verse 6, Jesus said, my time is not yet come. There it is. A significant statement in the whole thing. My time or my hour has not yet come, but your time is always ready. Your time is always ready. The world can't hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it. Its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not yet going up to the feast yet, for my time is not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to Judea, he also went up to the feast in Judea, Jerusalem, not openly like they wanted him to, but in secret. I'm not going to give in to the pressure from you. I'm not going to give in to the pressure from the crowd. And I'm not going up there yet. It's not my time to go up as Messiah. Jesus knew that he could go to Jerusalem. He could stir up the crowd. He could do miracles. And he could get people to follow him. He could drum up a big crowd. That's not what he was about. He was about being Messiah. Spiritual. His kingdom was not of this world. How often did he say that? Over and over and over again. It's spiritual. It's not from earth. It's from above. And notice how he puts it in verse 6 to his brothers. The last part of verse 6. But your time is always ready. You can go to Tabernacles as a Jew. Just go. But you're different. I'm the Messiah. You're just religious. But you're not following God. You're following your own dictates. It's not my time. It's not my time. Who is this Jesus? So now look at the debate about Jesus. Look at verse 11. The Jews, there's the, it's the Jews, the reference here, that's the rulers, the Pharisees, the scribes. The Jews saw him at the feast and said, where is he? Look down at verse 32. So Jesus is there. The rulers are looking for him. We already know the rulers want to do what? Well, real simple. They came to kill Jesus. Look at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning Jesus and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Figure out a way to kill him. Verse 45, the officers came, the officers were sent by the Pharisees to seize Jesus. They came back to the chief priests and the Pharisees, the rulers, and they said to them, they said to the officers, why have you not brought him? They went to get Jesus, but they came back without him. Look at verse 25. Some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? They wanted Jesus discredited before the people, and so they send the temple guards to get them. Verse 11 says they sought means over and over continuously they're seeking to get rid of Jesus. But they don't come back with him. Jesus was different. So look at the response of the people. Verse 12. Verse 12. There was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he's good. Others said, no. On the contrary, he deceives the people, like the Pharisees were telling them. Verse 20. The people answered and said, you have a demon to Jesus. Who's seeking to kill you? Verse 31. 
Many of the people believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? They're confused. Some think he's good. Some think he's the deceiver. Some think he's demonic. Some think he's a miracle worker. Some believe he might be the Christ. Look at verse 12 again. Verse 12. There was much complaining among the people concerning him. Much complaining. And the idea there in the Greek structure is it's a lot of murmuring, whispering, like negative vibe, negative overtones. Who is this guy? Why do the leaders, why are our rulers so adamant that he's got to be gone? We've got to get rid of him. We've got to kill him. Why? What is it about this guy? Now notice verse 13. They're afraid. However, the people, no one spoke openly of Jesus for what? Notice the phrase at the end of verse 13. Very important. Because they were afraid of whom? They were afraid of their rulers, the Jews. And if we openly come out and say we want to follow this Christ, particularly at Tabernacles when there are just thousands upon thousands of people here, the rulers may punish us. We're, they were afraid. Is it worth the repercussion to follow Jesus? Is it worth what can happen to us to follow Jesus? They couldn't have honest public debate because the Pharisees wouldn't allow it. They knew they couldn't win an argument, a debate with Jesus. That when he taught, it was with authority like they didn't have. They weren't going to allow it. C.S. Lewis wrote these words about Jesus. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. That is... I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. It's one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you could fall on his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. End quote. In other words, Jesus made it clear. Before Abraham was, I am. I and the Father are one. I am God. You've got to make a decision. It was true then. True now. There are evangelical pastors all over our nation. I was reading an article this week about a, one of the largest denominations in, in the United States of America that's pretty much adopting everything that's antichrist. We have to decide. You have to understand when Jesus set you free, He set you free to live for Him, Amen. to stand for Him. To understand persecution comes with the territory. Tell Paul told Timothy, if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. Not maybe. Jesus said, the world will hate you because it hated me first. We've got to understand it comes with the territory. And as Paul said, it's a privilege to suffer for the name of Jesus. Because it's an opportunity to point the world to him and say, he's not who you think he is. 
He's not who your church maybe told you he is. He's not who you've seen, these false teachers and these people lying and idiots saying scripture says this when it doesn't. He's exactly who he said he was, the eternal self-existent one. He is the great I am. And you have to bow to him. Your knee will bow to him. Either now in this life or after you're dead, you will bow your knee to Jesus and call him Lord God. Amen. Whether you want to or not, you will one day. He will be your judge or you'll be your savior. Your choice. Because he is exactly who he said he was. Now let's look what Jesus taught him here. You had to debate about him. Now look at his doctrine, what Jesus said, how amazing it was. Look at verse 15. The Jews marveled, saying, how does this man, Jesus, know letters, having never studied? I love this. To the Jews. Now these are their leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes. They were, in, they were the, quote, in Greek, ruling authority. Eat, verse 15. Even his enemies, that's who this is at verse 15, marveled at how much Jesus knew. Let's step back for a moment. How much did Jesus know? Last time I checked, he's omniscient. You understand what that means? I love to throw Latin out. So I took, took it for four years. Uh, every now and then I throw a Latin word out just to act like I'm educated. <laughs> omniscient means he knows everything. He knew it then. Now he veiled a lot of it, not to use it. Does he know it now? Is there anything about me he doesn't know? That bothers me sometimes. Because I know me. But he knows me too. And he keeps loving me anyway. And he got something to share with people. They were These were his enemies who wanted to kill him and they were marveling that he didn't know letters. Letters means that or that he didn't know. That he, how does he know all this? We haven't taught him anything. How does he know the scriptures like this? What Jesus was doing with the people was teaching from their Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament, their scriptures, and amazing these people in verse 15 about the scriptures, the people in verse 15, again, the Jews, they were experts in the scriptures. That was their profession. That's all they did. They were experts in it, and Jesus was amazing them with how much he knew. Notice the quote, having never studied. He had no formal training. He, didn't, he hadn't been in their rabbinical schools. He didn't have credentials. He's just a carpenter from Nazareth. How in the world does he know all this? He's uneducated. He's unlearned. He's uncredited. And so what they would say to the people is because he hadn't been to the right schools, this is just his opinion, and his opinion's wrong. I'll tell you this little side note, and it, because it's funny, not, not because it's about me, even though I happen to be there. Several years ago, we had a luncheon. Uh, we used to have these, these luncheons at um, Arlington, the guy at Bellevue, and they had a campus out there. It was a friend of mine, and we would get together with all the pastors. Once a month, we'd get together and eat lunch. And so for at one of the luncheons, he, he came and, and uh, we were just sitting around talking, so this was the first one when everybody was there, and because I'd been there the longest, they saved me for last. So everybody went around and, and said what church, they were Methodist church, Presbyterian church, Lutheran church. Everybody went around the room, said their name, how long they'd been there, and where they went to school. And then it was my turn. I said, well, I'm, uh, you know, I'm Randy Lockton, the pastor of uh, 
Christ Church. The, uh, our legal name is the church next door to Fred's. And so I told him that and, and left it. And then I've been here since we opened, whatever it was at that point, 10 years, whatever it was. And so one of them said, well, where'd you go to school? And I said, I wish you hadn't asked that. Because they'd all been to this seminary and that seminary. And I said, well, I went to the University of Memphis. He said, oh, okay, that's great. Where'd you go to seminary? I said, University of Memphis. He goes, that's not a seminary. I go, you're right. Because I didn't go to one. Now, I'm not anti-seminary, even though in some ways I am because of their mindset. But I'm not anti-seminary. What I am is pro-Bible and pro-Jesus. And I learned because God called me to do this, I learned it. And Ron, in his wisdom years ago, to make me look like I got credentials, gave me a doctorate too. So now you should be calling me Dr. Lockley instead of Hey Bub. <laughs> and I, you know, I love and I appreciate people like Ron and, and others. But God called me, he gave me a gift, and I loved to study, and I began to learn. And through precept ministry, he really helped me learn the Bible, learn how to study it for myself. And I love doing it. So can you do it without going to school? Can school help? Yes. Can it hurt? Yes. It's about the individual. Where are you? Why are you there? But they're, they're attacking Jesus because he didn't go to the right school. You're talking about God. He went to the wrong school? He must have gone to Tennessee or Ole Miss. I don't know. See, they wanted the people not to accept Jesus. He needed, they wanted, in their mind, he's, he can't be credited. He can't really be a rabbi. He hadn't been to the rabbinical schools. So verse 46, look at that. Verse 46. The officers answered, no man, these are the ones sent to take Jesus, no man ever spoke like this man, exclamation point. They're sent to arrest Jesus. They're so enamored with his teaching, with the authority. They just couldn't arrest him. Here's the point. Jesus spoke with authority. Because he has all authority. He's God. The Pharisees spoke from authority. You see the difference? They had the position. They had the power. They had the status. They had the people under the thumb. Jesus was God. He was in control. He was sovereign over the whole thing. They wanted him gone as a result. He threatened their authority. Look at verse 14 for a moment. About the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus went up to the temple and he taught. Doctrine, teaching, same word. Now remember, massive crowds are here. It's so qualitatively different than anything they've ever heard. It's about humility and truth and holiness they're just overwhelmed by what they're hearing. And notice Jesus' doctrine. Verse 16. Jesus answered and he said, My doctrine, my teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. It's not about Jesus of Nazareth, the man. My doctrine is about the one who sent me, God the Father. I, Jesus, teach what I learned from the Father. Paul, for example, said in Galatians, I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached to me is not according to man. 
For neither I neither received it, Paul's talking about himself, I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers that ever lived, never went to seminary. The key here in verse 16, it's not mine, but it's the one who sent me. Jesus himself, Scripture makes it very clear, and he makes it clear if you read through the Gospels, that he submitted to the authority of the Father, even though he was God equal with the Father, he submitted to the authority of the Father to teach us that that's important. What makes a good sermon? Preachers like to debate this today. What makes a good sermon? Is it, is it making sure you touch your felt needs and you feel good when you leave? Because that's kind of where people want it to be. You know what makes a good sermon? Or the guy's really funny? You know what makes it a good sermon? If you open God's word and you let God's word say what it says and then you let the Holy Spirit take it from there. Now, should you prepare? Absolutely. Should you study the word and present something and be consistent? Have it make sense? Of course. That's part of the gift. But the most important thing anybody can do who's presenting a sermon or teaching as a believer to other believers is open the word of God and let it say what it says. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Don't try to make it, push it somewhere where it's not. Make it say something it doesn't say. There's a lot of things you're going to hear you're not going to like. By the way, did God know that? Of course he did. But I need to hear it. I need to let God's word do its living work in me because it's sharper than a two-edged sword that could divide a soul from a spirit. That's what you need to hear. That's what I need to teach anybody who's opening God's word. So what is Jesus' doctrine about? Verse 17, if anyone wills to do God's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, Jesus speaking, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you're serious about knowing and doing God's will, which as a believer, that's the number one priority you have. What is God's will? And you pray, God, what is your will? I need to know your will, and then I have the desire to do your will, and then I do it. Arthur Pink put it this way. The fundamental condition for obtaining spiritual knowledge is a genuine heart, desire to carry out the revealed will of God in our lives. Wherever the heart is right, God gives the capacity to apprehend his truth. Are you serious about knowing the will of God? Dr. G. Campbell Morgan said this. When men are wholly, completely consecrated to the will of God and want to do that above everything else, and they find out that Christ's teaching is divine, that it's the teaching of God. What G. Campbell Morgan was saying and what Jesus is saying here in verse 17. Check out what I'm teaching against the revealed will of God, and here's what you'll discover, is that they line up. You want to do the will of God? You'll do the will of Jesus Christ. You want to know God? You'll follow Jesus Christ. If you want God to do what you want him to do, if you want to shape God to be what you want him to be, and then, you're, then you're not following God, you're God in that situation because you're telling him what to do. My desire as a believer is to surrender to the will of God and then do it. Even though I may not understand it and I may not like it. How many of you have children or have had children in your home? Did they always do exactly what you wanted them to do? Of course not. They're children. 
We're children of God. Do you always do exactly what God wants you to do? I don't. But I should want to as God's child. Our first child was born in 1975, and we were so young. I was dumber than dirt. I never changed a diaper. I didn't know anything about being a father. Mary grew up in a great home. She knew what was going on, and we still got a picture of me trying to change my first diaper in 1975, and we used cloth diapers, and I had a pen sticking out of this side of my mouth. I'm holding my little girl up like this, and I got a diaper in this hand, and Mary said, I'm not changing that diaper for you. You're going to do it, and then I think I stuck her a few times, and we got it done. I didn't know what I was doing. Think about that little girl, and I was responsible for her. Responsible. And she was so good. And, and growing up, you know, again, we're like 20, 20, 21 years old. And so we're at church with all our friends, our young marrieds, and they got kids, and they're having all kinds of trouble as they grow older. And our oldest child just never gave us any trouble. She just did what we told her to do. If she did something wrong, she came and confessed it. So I'm thinking, there ain't nothing to this parenting thing. Why y'all having a problem with it? It's easy. And then in 1980, God gave us our second child named Beth. And God said, all right, big boy, try this one. And from 1984, she spent all her time lying and deceiving. We, and she was so good at it, we could never tell. So we just, once she hit the eighth grade, we just grounded her for the rest of her life. Martha, to this day, I don't think she's ever committed a sin. Beth, took, Beth made up for it. And then Andy came along and helped, helped Beth. The difference. And God knows you. He knows me. And he knows you're going to let him down. He already knows, by the way, he's in tomorrow. He already knows what you're going to do. And he's like, oh, Randy, don't do that. That's, by the way, that's what the Holy Spirit conviction is. Randy, don't do that. And then Randy does it anyway because he's a child. But he loves me and he disciplines me just like you did, just like you would. So verse 18 it's about God's will, verse 17. Verse 18 is about the glory of God. He who speaks from himself as a man seeks his own glory like the Pharisees. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him or God is true. And there's no unrighteousness in him. In other words, Jesus, I'm not here to get you to follow Jesus of Nazareth just because I'm a great speaker. It's about the will of God, the glory of God. And in the end of verse 18, it's about truth. God's will God's glory, God's truth, verse 18, the end of it, no unrighteousness, God's righteousness. That's what Jesus teaches. That's what we need to be teaching. Get in the Bible, the glory of God, the will of God, the truth of God, the righteousness of God. What will change people's lives? And then the final point, verse 19, did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, you have a demon who's seeking to kill you. And it's ultimately about the judgment of God. Jesus answered and said, I did one work. Talking about healing the man, the paralytic. I did one work and you all marvel. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If it's the eighth day, it's the Sabbath, you circumcise him. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Don't judge according to appearance. Judge with righteous judgment. See, the Pharisees are all about an outward show. We can circumcise a guy on the Sabbath, 
But whatever you do, don't heal a man that's been paralyzed his entire life. Don't do that. But if somebody needs to be circumcised, bring them on in. We'll handle that. Good grief. And that was, that was the Pharisees. It's all about show. Jesus said, don't pray like they pray. This was their religious elite. Don't pray like them. Don't give like them. Don't mourn like them. They're fake. God looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance. It was all about appearance to them. All about appearance. Who is this Jesus? One last thing and then we're done. You see this division. Without reading all the verses, here are the questions that come up. Is Jesus the Christ? The Messiah? They're confused. Is he the prophet spoken of in Deuteronomy that would come? Jesus makes one final great declaration there in verse 37. And we're done. 37. On the last day of tabernacles, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, if you really want to be righteous, come to me and drink. Believe in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive future, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus' great declaration. Come to me. You want to, come, you want to be right with God? You come to me. I'm going to give you rivers of living water. I'm going to ultimately give you the Holy Spirit, which you promised in the upper room discourse. I'm going to set you free forever because I am the truth. Who is this Jesus? He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that you are our God. We are humbled that Jesus Christ is exactly who he said he was, the great I am, that he's self-existent, creator of the universe, eternal God. We're grateful. We're humbled you saved us. We thank you for the privilege of being your children and pray we live in the reality of what it really means to be free from sin and death because Jesus conquered them for us. So, Lord, as we close out our time together, that we would meditate on, think about what does it mean to be free, not just as an American, but as a Christian in America. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand if you want to as we close out our time together.